Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to get together on a Wednesday and uh, fellowship and then study your word. And we appreciate this time, Father, a break from our crazy world so we can just focus on your, your word. Uh, edify us now. May the Holy Spirit illuminate us to your word so we understand it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I think we're starting uh, this other list that, that we created. And I think what we need to understand is as we, we study... Uh, Paul, one, two, three. Bruce, I can't hear myself for some reason. Is it my, my speaker back there? Maybe? Something? Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. Maybe I'm not hearing myself for some reason. Okay, um, anyway, um, we're looking at Paul's facet of doctrine, how to, how to deal with hard times. And the subject area we're in is knowing the teachings that he taught, which is theology, okay? And we said there's four aspects to that. You've got to know God, you've got to know reality, you've got to know others, and you've got to know yourself. So now we've moved into that last phase of knowing others and knowing how to spot them, knowing how to, who to deal with, who not to deal with. Because part of, part of life... Um, it's not all the entirety of life, but part of life is figuring out uh, the types of people that you need to be around, the types of people that are actually going to edify you instead of pull you down in life, the kinds of people that help you on the path of achieving God's will for your life and those who get in the way of that and actually pull you off the path and derail you. And, and that, that is really the, uh, how to understand the horizontal um, because people are going to sin against you, okay? That you just got to understand that. The people that love you will sin against you and you will sin against them, okay? And in those relationships, we deal with grace and truth. But then there's these, these other people out there that you actually do not want to have a relationship with because um, they're so toxic. They're so destructive to, the, to you and to others around them. And, uh, you know, the problem is people's people picker is not trained very well to spot this, okay? So they get burned by people. They get burned by relationships. They get into relationships that burn them. And uh, they, they really never learn or understand why their people picker is messed up. They just think in their minds, I don't know why I'm attracted to these types of people or something like that. Or I don't understand why I attract this kind of person, but I do. And it's really not so much them attracting. It's more of them having a blind spot and not knowing how to spot 
whatever trait they're missing in that person. So these are the things we outlined. Last week, we, we outlined a, a lot of these things, irresponsible people, detached people, people that fuse together in marriage, an addict, it needs to be needed or value type of person, which is we call in, in um, psychiatry and psychology, they call that codependency. But the person derives value from needing to be needed uh, through works. Anyway, we talked about that last time. So um, now I want to start a new list and understanding that, you know, just when you're looking around, the first thing you want to see is, does the other person have the ability to connect with other people? Actually, to connect with you. And, uh, and one of the ways to connect is they can identify with other people. They can, they can sympathize, they can empathize, they can understand people, and that's the kind of people that you actually want to be with. If you find people that simply cannot connect, if you find people that can't identify, they can't understand you, they don't understand you, or they don't want to understand you, then that's a person to avoid, obviously. Okay, but, but unfortunately, people get themselves hooked up to people that can't connect. And they get in that relationship, and then they realize, uh-oh, I, I made a big mistake. And this person has no ability to connect, okay? Now, you can gain the ability by getting therapy and getting counseling and biblical advice and stuff like that. But for the most part, most human beings don't do that. Not even most Christians will do that. They don't even attempt to try. And because they don't attempt to try, they never are a, a, a person that can connect and identify with others. So that's another person to watch out for. Um, I mean, this, these kinds of people might be very successful in life. They may, they may be able to be, you know, achieve many things. There's a lot of good traits about these. I'm just saying this is the aspect that they can't do. So if you're looking for that, that's the person to avoid, okay? You might, they might be good in other relationship types of thing, your boss or whatever, but if you're looking for a boss to be able to connect to you, that's not the kind of boss you're gonna find. That you've, got, you've got to keep looking for if that's the kind of boss you want or whatever that can connect with you and empathize with you. But the most part, I don't know if people are really looking for that in their employment, but maybe they are, I don't know. But anyway, the other thing to watch out for is people that apologize constantly, but they never repent. Um, and part of the Christian life, once you're a, a, a saved believer, um, is, is that we're constantly repenting for the things we've done and are doing and you know, confessing that, asking for forgiveness and stopping the behavior. That's, that's like 98% of the, the uh, passages about repentance are dealing with believers repenting from the bad things they're doing, okay? So part of our lives is gonna be spent in, in a repentance mode, okay? Repentance mode means that I'm changing my behavior, Okay, that's what you're looking for in repentance. I want a change of behavior. I do not want someone that continues to tell me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and never changes. That person is unrepentant and is a liar. Okay? And you see this in marriage relationships where the person, yeah, I really messed up. Yeah, but will you stop being a narcissist? Will you stop being, uh, you know, um, an unforgiving person? Will you stop being prideful? Will you stop 
with the antics that you pull every day. You know, that, those kinds of things. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm an idiot. I'm sorry, but you, you turn around and do the idiot thing again the next day. That's a person that's demonstrating to you that they're just playing a game. Because apology without repentance means nothing. It means nothing. So it's like the, when you see these stupid politicians that get up on, uh, you know, and they had some mistress or something like that, and, and, I, 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 and they said something stupid, oh, and they go up there and, and apologize. And basically what they have done in our society is whitewash people's uh, antics by just getting on a platform and saying, I'm sorry. And then that makes it all right. But they're still the same person. There's, it's not about repentance. It's about you got, you got to do this and then, then you, you uh, get your name cleared. It's not true repentance. True repentance says, I am turning around from the behavior that I am involved in and I'm doing something brand new. Now that may take some time and it might start with the idea that yes, I need to do this, but the changing of the behavior might take some time. It's a process. But the issue then is, if it's a big deal, is the person making progress? It might be like turning a, a, you know, a big ship or a big airplane and you have to do it real slow, but is the person on the road of progress? Because sometimes these things to repent of are not really overnight things. Um, and so what we're looking for is, are we, are we moving forward? And how do we tell if we're moving forward? Well, I typically tell a person, you want to know if your, per, your, your spouse or whatever is moving forward in this, or anyone for that point is repenting, I tell them, give them 40 days. 40 days is a time of testing. They want to know, how long do I keep doing this? I go, well, let's go 40 days. That's a typical advice I give anybody. Um, let's see what 40 days does, because 40 days is a time of testing. And through that 40 days, if the person is truly repenting, you should see movement in the 40 days. If you come to the end of 40 days and the person has not made a move, then you call into question what's going on. But if you are seeing movement, great. Well, then how long do I go after that, Brandon? Then you go another 40 days and you watch the behavior and you just keep going in 40-day increments to see if the person's on the right path. That's how you tell. If at any point the person stops in those 40 days, you have the right to question and you have the right to level more consequences for not doing the right behavior. And let me tell you this, man, some people actually wanna change and there's some people that only will change because they got caught, okay? And that kind of person, if you're married to them, um, you have to inflict enough pain that makes it very uncomfortable to stay that way. And you have to inflict enough pain to where it actually hurts them. Okay? And this is what people don't realize is that they'll do a few consequences here and there to the person because they want repentance from the person and the person doesn't repent. And they're like, well, I did consequences and it's not working. Up the consequences. You have to keep putting the consequences to such a level that it causes them pain. You have to be willing to inflict pain on the person. And it, the kind of pain I am talking about is redemptive pain where the person is getting consequences for bad behavior. We're not talking about harmful pain. We're talking about redemptive pain. 
And redemptive pain centers around removing your physical presence from the individual and causing them pain from a lack of fellowship. Okay? So people say, well, it's not working. Up the, up the pain. Find, to, find where the person is adversely affected by your disfellowship. And if you can find that, then that's where you work from. And you keep issuing that level of pain until the person stops and changes behavior. Now, there are uh, psychopaths and there are sociopaths out there that people are married to. They can fully function in life, a lot of these psychopaths and sociopaths. They don't feel guilty for what they do, okay? And these types of people are on the level of mental illness. On the level of mental illness, you're dealing with another ball game. You have to ratchet it up to uh, other things, okay? Like you must go see a doctor. You must be, uh, you must go get checked out. You must have a psyche valve. You must have, uh, or else I'm leaving. I'm gonna physically remove myself from this house. I'm not advocating divorce. I'm advocating physical removal of yourself if a person is on a sociopathic or um, psychopathic uh, kind of mentality. That person is unpredictable. That person doesn't feel any guilt for what they do. Now, think about the people you've encountered. Have you ever encountered someone that doesn't feel guilty for really, really bad behavior? That was like just totally black and white. They're on that level, guys. And don't try to think you can reel them in by normal consequences. Normal consequences do not work on psychopaths or sociopaths. Do you know why? Why doesn't normal con? Because it ends up sometimes with them getting shot by a cop. You know what I'm saying? They're the kinds that challenge authority. They don't feel any pain. They don't feel guilt for any remorse for what they do to you. And, you know, the worst kind end up getting killed themselves because they just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and finally someone with a gun shoots them because they, they attack somebody or whatever. They, they, they uh, attack a school or they you know, kill people like we've seen in the last few weeks. Um, if you're dealing with a psychopath and sociopath, my advice to you is get away from them as soon as possible. That, you're not dealing with a normal human being. You're dealing with mental illness at that point that's way beyond you. And a mental illness that when a person doesn't feel the effects of pain from isolation and doesn't feel the effects of hardcore consequences, you're dealing with mental illness at that point, okay? Don't mess with them anymore. Just get away. Just get away from them. They're not in their right minds. And I can tell you this, I've talked to many, many people that their, their, their spouses get like this and it doesn't end well. They, and, they, and they try. They try their best and they try to do everything they can. And after years and years of struggling and years and years of dozens and dozens of counselors that can't fix it, uh, it has to come back to the mental illness of the person. The person's a sociopath and they're not gonna get fixed. And the person doesn't realize they're a sociopath many times or a psychopath. So uh, that's the extreme. 
that's the extreme. But that, people always ask me, where do I go from here? The consequences are not working. I keep ratcheting them up. Um, uh, then you deal with other people that, that can't forgive. These are the kind of people that hold grudges for life and they become embittered. They become a very difficult person that the older they get, they, uh, a sign of this will be, they will become very critical. Um, they are um, really unhappy people. They're typically fighting depression, they're fighting anxiety, they're fighting all this other stuff because they won't forgive something. And if you won't forgive something, you're actually poisoning your own system is what you're doing. You're actually corrupting yourself. And they don't end well. They don't end well uh, because the, the older you get, the less you can contain this stuff and the more it, it messes you up. And uh, your outlook on life is extremely pessimistic. And because of that, uh, the person is very difficult to be around, okay? So what happens, unfortunately, to a person like this is they get hooked up when they're younger. And because of their age, they can kind of hold it back and still contain unforgiveness in them, and it really doesn't spill into normal life. But by the time you hit your mid-40s and beyond, you can't contain it anymore, and you just become salty. You just become just bitter and nasty, and, uh, you know, no one really wants to be around you because of that. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, we've had to deal with people like this coming to Rock Harbor, and uh, they are so embittered and so angry, and there's no reason why, that we've had to tell them, I don't think we're the right church for you because you're nasty and mean, and no one likes you. <laughs> Monica, have we not? Where's Monica at? We have, we have said that, right? We have had to tell that conversation with people. You're mean, you're nasty, no one likes you. Now, that, now you just don't come out and say that, right? You kind of give some grace to it, but that kind of person tears up Jack. They're mean to everybody, and they're demanding, and they, they, they want it their way, and it's like, oh my gosh, how, how are you married? I, I, don't, I feel bad for your spouse that has to live like that with you because you're just horrible. You're a, a very unhappy person. I, I know you've ran into them. You ha- I know you have to have. This is like the common thing in humanity. Yes, back there, hand. Uh, pa- Pastor, um, we had somebody in my family <clears throat> that was like that. It was really confusing. And you were um, describing this person to a T about the sociopath and, and, the, and the other one. Psychopath. Uh, psychopath. And we found out they had bipolar and borderline. So can you... Do you know anything about that? I know a little bit, and, and um, when you start going into those realms, the person, if they're not getting good therapy, is, is a loose cannon, okay? They have to be getting therapy. They have to be getting help. And then, if they do get the help, it's actually manageable. It's, it's pretty manageable if they get the help. The problem, Stephen is these types of people don't want help. Go ahead. That person denied it. 
of course. Of course. They, they deny it. Everyone's wrong. They're right. And you can even have an intervention with these people. And they're like, no, you guys are all crazy. No, you are. And they, they, they never acknowledge it. Right? And that's the problem. And so I, I've had to deal with a lot of people that have, have family members like this. And when they deny it, you just say, well, um, you have to walk away from that relationship because if you're in denial, forget it, man. And you're a sociopath, uh-uh. You're not going to get anywhere with them, man. You're, 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 you're treading water. Um, but good question, but that's, that's what starts happening. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so I have a sister who is kind of in that realm. And over the years, it's, it's been about like six years. Um, and uh, haven't had any contact with her. But recently I was praying and like the next day, the Lord literally like my brother-in-law, um, her husband called me on accident. Oh, really? So <clears throat> I got back in contact with him. They've, they've since moved to Texas and everything. But how do you suggest like going back into getting back into contact and back into relationship? Because it's something that I haven't had contact with her in, I don't know, six or seven years. So let me ask you this. What started the separation between you and her? Um, it's been consistent lies throughout the years. Okay, okay, very good. Multiple lies, or we're sticking on a couple of them? Multiple. Multiple. Like. So she, is she a habitual liar? Yes. Okay, so we're dealing with a habitual liar. Okay, so she's, she wants, she's hiding something then. That's the problem. So let me ask you this. If you got in contact with her, and you reached out and said, hey, whatever her name is, um, I'd like to reestablish a relationship with you. We've been separated for a long time. Um, but you, you have to deal with the elephant in the room. Uh, and you would say, I want to reconnect with you, but are we still dealing with this unreality here or whatever the, the, the issues might be? Are we still dealing, how, where are you at on that? And if she indicates to you, well, and blah, 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 and it's the same lie, then that's an indication she's not healthy. And, and if she says to you something to the effect of maybe like, yeah, man, I was, I was just an idiot during that time, and I, I don't know why I saw things like that. Um, that's not me anymore. Then boom. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a step forward. But if she goes right back into denial, right back into lying, then just step away again. She's not ready. And you can just keep testing the waters periodically, but you want, what you're looking for is a repentant attitude that I'm no longer that person. Yeah, I can't believe I said that. What an idiot I am. You know, and, they, and they, like, mea culpa, the whole thing. If they do the mea culpa, then hey, they're, they're open. No mea culpa? No. Just get over it. That's what they'll say to you. What's your problem, man? Why do you hung up on the past? Just get over it. Let's just move on. That's a lie. You can't move on until the past is dealt with. That's what they always will tell you. Let's just sweep it under the rug and pretend nothing happened. Uh-uh, no way, you can't do that. You have to deal with the past because the past will affect the present. And people will say this, 
I'm done with the past. And here's what I say. But the past isn't done with you. That's your problem. And until you work it out and you, you deal with it, guys, or anyone you're dealing with that won't work on that stuff, you're not getting anywhere. And we all have these broken relationships, guys. I know it. I mean, we have them in our family. You have them in yours, obviously. And, and one of the things that people make a mistake about is they keep pushing the issue with someone that doesn't want the issue. And they think, well, maybe this time when I talk to them, um, if I frame it this way, this will be good. Or if I frame it this way, it'll be good. And the person's going to wall up. What are you doing at that point, according to Jesus, if they have a wall up and you say, they just got to hear what I got to say? Thank you. You're casting pearls before swine. You're giving truth to someone that doesn't want the truth. So what does Jesus say? You, they're going to take the truth you give, stomp on it, which means they're going to desecrate anything you say. They're not going to take anything valid that you say. And then he says, the pig will turn on you and attack you. So you've just invited them to attack you. So who's the fool? You're the fool to think that more information is what they need. It's not more information that they need. They need to repent. But in our human minds, we think more information solves the problem. And it's actually a foolish thing to give information to those who don't want it. So I know that goes against our, our, our I don't know, our, our human nature, it seems like, but that's, that's the divine Jesus telling you, do not do that. Don't cast your pearls to swine. It's not going to work. And you're going to get messed up in it because they're, they're retaliating towards you. Okay, where am I at? Dr. There's a group of people called paranoid schizophrenics that come in with fixed delusions. Mm. These people need serious medical help. Yes. Number two, if they have a lot of voices they're hearing, they often have demonic issues. That's right. Possession. That's right. And uh, that's where you start realizing that if you're dealing with somebody, guys, like this, like Dr. Mensing points out, that you've you got schizophrenia, we've got, we got all kinds of other deep, deep mental issues or demonic issues, right? Um, and I did a whole thing for our staff to know the difference between demonic voices versus uh, hearing voices, uh, which is schizophrenic. Did you know the difference between someone that says, I'm hearing voices, how would you know if that is demonic versus schizophrenia? It's real simple, simpler than you think, but most people don't know this. The schizophrenic is really hearing a voice in the ear. The demonic is sending a message that's not heard in the ear, but heard in the mind. And it's a message. It's a message. Schizophrenics hear words, hear different things. They don't hear messages per se. 
Messaging means that there is demonic communication to the mind happening. So if you're trying to figure that out, when I'm assessing somebody and they say I'm hearing voices, I want to know if they're hearing it in their mind and a message or if they're hearing it in their ear. And that's a good indication of whether it's schizophrenia or demonic. But Dr. Mensink's right. When you're at that level, you need to punt it. You need to punt it to those who know how to deal with that because it's going to be way over your head. And you're going to try to deal with something, especially if it's on the demonic level, that's way beyond you and can go after you too for messing with them, right? It will, go, it will mess with you for trying to help them. That happens all the time. Um, so be careful. So Dr. Mensing's put a good point. Yeah, I got another. Yeah, Paul. Pa- yeah, Pastor. Uh, when it's not a family member, it's a lot easier to say. But when it becomes a family member, the guilt factor from other family members or even the society itself, when we claim something's not right, you guys are evil or you're being Yes. And you, I, I just got to thank you, Paul, for bringing that up. It happens to everybody that takes a stand against family members that are acting evil. It does. And for some reason, the weak Laodicean Christians around them will take their side, the perpetrator, and saying, you're being too harsh. This is unloving what you're doing. This is uncaring. I've never heard about disfellowshipping somebody. Well, apparently you haven't read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because it's right there and Paul said to do that. And, or practice Matthew 18, right? Which means uh, ultimately, if the person can't get their act straight, they're to be excommunicated. It's a pretty real deal. We got that uh, obviously carried into the New Testament from the synagogue, the excommunication thing. And, and, and the funny thing is, man, they think enabling is compassionate. You see what I'm saying? Because they'll enable the bad behavior. Well, just love them back to Jesus. That's not what Paul said, love them back to Jesus. What did he say? Kick the immoral brother out. And, and people will ask me, well, how far do I go with that? What does it say? Well, read the text. It says, don't even have a meal with them. Don't even have a meal with them, Paul? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Don't have a meal with them. I can't even go to Thanksgiving dinner? No. I can't go to Christmas. It says don't have a meal. I can't go to lunch? No. Can't go to lunch. Can't go to breakfast? No. I mean, where do you want to go? He says don't have a meal with them. And they still don't listen to that. Well, that's, that's just, that's, that's Paul versus Jesus. Okay. You ever had anyone do that? Well, that's Paul's theology, but that's not what Jesus would say. Excuse me, time out. You mean that Paul's going to contradict the rest of Scripture and contradict Messiah? But they'll do that. They really will. They're called, they're called red-letter Christians. Have you heard of them? They'll do that. They'll say Paul had a different doctrine than Messiah. And, you, and it's real weird. It's a heresy, obviously, because whatever Paul say, it, it came from the Holy Spirit, obviously, the Word of God. It's the same thing, right? It's, it's the words of Messiah. But nonetheless, they'll do that. And I, I don't know what it is, guys, but when you take a hard stand, your family that's Laodicean will come against you. Happens all the time. 
you're being mean, this is unloving, this is unkind, that you would treat someone that way. Hey man, Paul is saying this is your only way to get them back. Your only way to get them back is to isolate. And isolation causes them the pain necessary to bring them back. And it does work. I, I mean, I, we, I see it in scripture, I've seen it on the ground. I know it does work, and it does, if you'll do it correctly. But uh, I know, Paul, it's, it's nuts, man. Oh, what's your, you know, and they'll go into the church thing, and like, I've never heard something like that. And you have Christian counselors. We've ran into Christian counselors that, that are, are, are undermining Paul by saying, well, you gotta love them back. Well, the ultimate form of love would be to follow scripture and to excommunicate them or remove your physical presence from them. That's the most loving thing to do. They don't see it that way. So I don't know, man. I, there's no winning. There's no winning with Laodicea, I can tell you that. Okay, we had other questions. Did we or no? Good, okay. So we have the, the person that don't forgive. Then we have the victim mentality, obviously. The victim mentality uh, incorporates this early on in life and there's no doubt, many of them have been victimized. There's no doubt about that. But the problem is, instead of becoming a survivor of the trauma and the pain and what's happened to them, they choose the road of victimhood instead of the road of surviving, okay? You're supposed to be a survivor. And, and the aesthetic concept of, of surviving and persevering, not the Calvinist persevering, but persevering as a Christian means that when you get knocked down, you get back up and you get back on the path and you keep moving. That's the idea of persevering. And uh, obviously God helps you while you persevere in his power, but if you're not gonna persevere, don't expect God's power to get back up. You have to get up after you've been hit. But the problem is most people see the easy way. And the easy street that the devil will show you once you've been traumatized is to say, look, man, this messed up your whole life. You might as well take on the victim mentality and, and be the poor victim. Everyone will feel sorry for you. And then you can be irresponsible with your life. And that's at the heart of victimhood mentality is irresponsibility then comes from victim mentality is entitlement. So you have a two-pronged approach of becoming a victim. Lack of responsibility and then entitlement. I'm entitled to better treatment because I was victimized way back when. I did this and so therefore I should have a special treatment now. That's what's happening with the whole world. But it's a two-pronged approach. Lack of responsibility. Well, I've had people tell me, um, how come I like playing the role of a victim? Because they said, this doesn't make sense. I get what you're saying, Brandon, but uh, why would I choose to be a victim? Why do I like that? Because I said, that's your sugar stick is becoming a victim. Why do I like that? I said, you like it because you don't have to be responsible for your behavior. You can just say, I am what I am because I got hurt. I am what I am because this happened to me. I said, what kind of, try to do that in front of Jesus and see what he would say to you. That you can behave in ungodly fashions because you are a victim. I don't think he would allow you to do that. Well, do you? Well, no. And then why do you do it? Because you like being irresponsible. You like still going to your sugar stick. 
you like being a child. You're Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up. And because of that, that's why you like the irresponsibility. You don't have to take responsibility for your actions. You have to rehab. See, all of us in this room got struck several times probably, big time, right? Like blows that would just derail your whole life. And the survivor mentality is, okay, I got a rehab. I know what happened to me. I got struck by a car in a crossing walk. I got struck by a drunk driver. Now I'm in the bed and my, my legs don't work. So what are you supposed to do? Lay there in the bed the rest of life? My legs don't work. Poor me, poor me. No, your job is to get out of that bed, rehab, and start walking again, spiritually speaking, right? So that's the idea of a Christian persevering. But most Christians won't persevere. They won't push through the pain of the rehab. Now, why does the rehab have pain associated to it? Because you have to go back and revisit where the pain came from. And no one wants to go back into the pain. They want to sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen and just bury it. But the pain's still there. So the painful part of sanctification is you have to unlock those, those closets and go back in and deal with it properly through truth. And people don't want to go there. They don't want to feel the emotion. They don't want to feel the pain anymore. And so if you don't want to do that, then what do you, how do you handle it? Well, you just go numb. You just go numb. That's your way of handling it. You'll detach from your emotions and you just go numb. And that leads into you being a disconnected person. You're not integrated into the social life with anybody. So it has all kinds of serious ramifications. So the problem is, this is what we're facing in society. It's corrupting society. It really is. The younger generation are a bunch of narcissistic victims. That's all they are as a group, as a whole. I know there's, there's exceptions to the rule, but if you look at what society is doing to our younger generations, they're nothing but victim narcissists and feel entitled that we owe them everything. Let's go to the other one, 16. No interest in character or spiritual growth. You ever been around somebody that's, and I'm talking about believers that are not, are not interested in growth. Oh, they come to church, They'll even serve, but they're really not interested in growth. In fact, they don't grow at all. But they sit in the pew every day. They go to Bible studies, but they don't grow. What are, what are they trying to do? Well, this person likes getting content, maybe, um, but they have no, no use for the content as far as applying it. You have to apply the content. It's not just getting, gaining more content. And a lot of people do that. And what happens is, if you don't apply content that you're learning, and you gain and gain and gain and gain in content, then knowledge will puff up and cause pride. And that becomes the problem. There's other people that, Christians, they're saved and all that. Um, they have no intention of growth because they think they've, they've made it. They, they think they know it all and they think they've reached the point where no one can teach them anymore. Yet they'll still come to church, but they don't listen. Uh, they, have, they don't have ears to hear. And the reason is they have made it spiritually. This is primarily what I see with people who grew up in the church, especially the younger crowd. They think they have heard it all. 
They think they know it all. And it's like, dude, you didn't spend one day in seminary. What are you talking about? You have no idea. And maybe, and maybe it's because they go to the churches that teach at a second grade level, maybe. I don't know. And I would imagine you could pre pretty much anyone in this room can outdo about 98% of the pastors in the nation um, that are teaching at a second grade level. I get that. But then they pull it here. And then I'm like, what's your problem, dude? Oh, you're just doing this for your wife. Oh, okay. It's your wife that's interested, not you. And so they come for their spouse, but not for themselves. And they don't listen. And they don't, they don't apply. And I've seen people for decades stay at the same level spiritually. But it was intentional. They don't want to grow. And there's people like that, okay? You're around people like that, Again, bad company corrupts good character. Around people that don't want to grow, you won't grow either because it won't be encouraging. Let's go to the next one. Does not earn your trust. You're like, what do you mean by this? Well, it's the kind of person that says, I'm in charge, now trust me. And it's like, it's like oh my goodness. The biblical leadership model is you earn trust, Okay. You earn trust. David earned trust, right? He earned trust to be the king of Israel. He earned trust. David was, would, he made sure there was never any idols or false idolatry in the land, okay? Saul, on the other hand, went to a witch, okay? So David is trustworthy to be the leader of Israel and to be the king of Israel. He's a man after God's own heart, which means he's trustworthy and means he repents from when he does wrong. Okay, so when you deal with this on interpersonal relationships, um, these people want you to trust them without any history whatsoever. So I've, I've had people come to me and they're brazen enough to come to me and say, I wanna be X, Y, and Z ministry leader for you. And I'm like, dude, I don't even know you from Adam. You've only come to this church for like two months. Who are you? And they wanna be my new uh, whatever, youth pastor or new, new uh, you know, men's ministry leader. I'm like, I don't even know you. Well, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, they give all their credentials out, whatever, but I don't know you. And I, I'm just aghast of that, but what that is, is the mentality is, I don't need to earn your trust. That's the mentality. I don't need to earn your trust. And that's, that, that is a, not, not only a prideful attitude, but that's somebody that's hiding something. Because if you don't want to earn my trust, what, what, would you, what would you think if I saw you for a year? What, why don't you let me see you for a year before I would put you in that position? They don't want that. They want to get in the position immediately. Now, that will come, that will come into interpersonal relationships. What do you mean? In order to trust someone in a marriage, you've got to know them backwards and forwards. I've got to know their past, I've got to know the present, and I've got to know the future for them. What do you mean? I want to know where this guy's going. I want to know where this girl's going. Okay? So the conversations that I encourage marriage couples to have is in order to know each other, really, really know each other, you must talk about everything in your past. 
everything and you let out the dirty laundry. And I tell that to young married couples before they get married. You better let it all out. And they're like, no, I don't want to tell him that. He'll dump me if I tell him that. Then that's the sign. That's the sign. If he will dump you for that, then if he finds out in marriage, he will divorce you over it. Okay? So you better get everything on the table. Everything you've done, yeah, everything on the table because it will be found out later. So you get everything on the table and you talk about your past. You talk about your parents. You talk about your upbringing. You talk about your sexual experiences. You talk about all that and get it out on the table so everybody's dealing with the... Uh, uh, a fair understanding of who everyone is. Because if you go into a marriage and hide parts of you, that will be the end of your marriage. Because it will come out. You won't be able to hold it back. And it will affect you later on. So that's the past, okay? You'll be amazed when I ask a married couple, I say, where did they go to school? I don't know. You don't know where they went to high school? Then you don't know this person. What kind of upbringing did they have? I don't know. Did they have any trauma in their life? I don't know. Did they suffer any pain? I don't know. Do they have siblings? I don't know. <laughs> I'm serious. I've had those conversations. And then I'm like, dude, how are you going to get married to someone you don't know? And I go, you're marrying into this whole family. You don't know about their family dynamics? Are they dysfunctional? You might be marrying into dysfunction. Crazy, huh? You got a question, comment? Okay. Uh, anyway, so the, 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 the issue then is, okay, Sean, I'm, I'm open with my past, and if, I'm, if I can be open with my past, then I'm trustable. I can't trust you if you're not going to be honest with me, right? So honesty talks about the past, and honesty tells me about the present. Where are you at right now, man? What are you thinking? What are you doing? Okay, I got to be honest right now where we're at. That's a little bit easier. And then I got to be honest about the future. Here's the problem. This is the most neglected area as well as the past. So people just function in the present, but they don't understand the past and they don't understand the future. Here's what you have to be able to do for your spouse. You have to tell them, where are we going in the next five years? Where are we going in the next 10 years? God willing. Okay, you always put the caveat, God willing. But you better start planning. You better, you better tell people where you think you're going because you will be able to gain more trust that you know where you're going and you have some type of plan. Look, guys, the worst thing you could do and your, your wife tells you, where are you going? You go, I don't know. You have lost all trust, all trust, because I'm following somebody that doesn't know where he's going. You see what that means? I mean, to be the spiritual leader, you're going to know what's your game plan for the next five years? What's your game plan in 10 years? What's your game plan in 20 years? Now, it gets a little bit more nebulous the longer you get out. But if you don't have a game plan for the next five years, who expects anyone to follow that? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know. We'll just see where the door opens. No, 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 no. Don't spiritualize this. You better know what you're doing in your career. Where are you taking this family at? Where are you taking our kids? I don't know. Uh, forget it, man. I'm not putting my kids in your hands. You're crazy. 
that's where trust is gained. Do I have a leader that knows where they're going? Okay, that's how trust is made. Lies to manage life. So like back to the, you were mentioning your sister, someone that habitually lies has figured out that they manage life through habitual lying. And that's very dangerous because they're totally untrustable. You don't know if they're telling you the truth or not. They exaggerate beyond limits. They, they're using hyperbole all the time. And you don't know where the truth is with this person. So someone that's not honest, you simply can't have a relationship with. That's just the way it is. They will stab you in the back and you, they'll pretend that you're your friend. Yeah, question. Good evening, Pastor. Hi. Um, well, I guess I did the right thing. It's been 13 years and we're married at Value Bible, right? And um, halfway through that mark, five years, I did ask, what's our game plan also? Yeah. He's like, he didn't say, I don't know, because I would have lit up. <laughs> Good for you. And it's been up and down, but yeah. by God's grace, like, you know, Pastor Rizzo and them said, you're going to have some bumps because, you know, he, it's his third marriage. I go, oh, God got this. So now you make me feel good that I did do the right thing. Yes, you did. Thank that you. Was it's good. confirmed. We are off to a good, and this is my best friend. She'll tell you it's the truth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you made the right decision. Your so instincts I'm serve you well. Right? Well, yes. women, hello. <laughs> yeah, right? Because you, you want to know where we're we taking this. Where, where are we going here? Yeah, good, good. I, that's great, man. It's a great example of that. Um, and and this, this idea of lies to manage lies, life, you typically see this a lot of times in addicts, okay? Addicts were notorious for lying. That's all they do is lie. And, and it's always covering up what they're doing, right? And so that's why you, you, you tell people, don't ever trust an addict. I don't care if it's an alcoholic. I don't care if it's a, a dope addict. I don't care if it's a sex addict. You can't trust addict because they habitually lie. Now, once they get out of that lifestyle and they change, yes, they can go back on the right path. But man, when they're in it, they'll tell you the best things you want to hear, man. They're really good about what you want to hear. They're masters at it, but then they're lying. And you know what? People say, well, they can't even look me. Oh, they'll look you in the face dead on. The types of liars I'm talking about is the ones that can pass polygraph test, tests. They're that good. And they're out there. And they take advantage of women. Primarily, it's guys that do this. And they're expert liars. But they've done it all their life. That's how good they are. And they will look you in the eye. They will give you no cues that they're lying. Typically, people, when they're lying, they'll give cues off, and you can read body language and know that the person is lying, okay? But they, they have mastered it. They do not give cues off. Um, and, and you see a lot of them in the politicians out there. They're masters, right? Total masters of lying. They look right in the camera. They don't even twitch, man. Bold-faced lie, and they know it's a lie, and what is that? That's a habitual liar. They've lie lied to manage life. Self-absorption is a big problem. Um, people are too into themselves. They think life revol revolves around them. This is where the narcissism comes from. And, 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 and this kind of person doesn't really think about others. They don't see how others are affected by their behavior. And so this kind of person, because they're self-absorbed, 
their whole decision-making in life is not concerning others. It's about how it affects them. And you might see this in a marriage. You might see this out in, in, in the world or a boss or something like that. But the self-absorption creates a selfishness about them that they're really not here for others. They're just not. And uh, a good sign of that is narcissism. Um, will not give you freedom. These people are very dangerous. They're the over-controllers. Over-controllers are very manipulative, and their whole goal is to enslave you, is to be able to control you. And, and they're not going to think like that. They're just, what they're trying to do is give themselves a feeling of coherence in life rather than chaos, and the only way to do that is through controlling others, okay? And so this kind of person looks for someone they can control. They look for doormats to be uh, 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 in relationship with. And typically you have a controller and a doormat that really mesh well together. The problem is when that controller tries to do it to the outside world, then people will resist. The instinct in human beings, because we're made in the image of God, is freedom, okay, freedom. The more freedom you can give in a relationship, the more you will experience what true love is. But you have to give freedom. To control someone means that you're not getting true love back. This is why God doesn't control us. This is why he gives us free will. It's because if he had any control over our love for him, it wouldn't be genuine love. It would be a fake love. It would be like someone putting a gun to your head saying, love me, right? And God's not gonna do that. He's gonna give you the freedom. Do you wanna love him? That's your choice. Now, in this relationship of control, these, these people don't care about genuine love because they won't give you freedom. What they care about is controlling the other person. And in many other ways, they have modified love into control. That if this person obeys me, then they love me. And you see how that works. If this person obeys me, then they love me. If they do what I tell them to do, then they love me. And I've seen this with couples, and it is a what we call a slave-master relationship in the couple. Now, you have parent-child, but then the slave-master thing is really bad, too. So uh, let me give you some examples. Um, early on, when I was, we were at Stockdale, a long time ago, man, this is like 12 years ago, we had people that were helping us out. And uh, I remember one of the persons could only help us out if his wife let him help us out. Yeah, I'm serious, man. Only if his wife let him uh, let him help us. And we, we couldn't figure out for the longest time, like, you know, we, we come set up early, get things going, and the only time he could come and early and set, help set us up is if his wife allowed him. And we're like, dude, what does your wife need you on a Sunday morning for? And it, it was, well, I gotta help her get the kids ready. And I said, dude, my grandma had 10 kids. She got those, all, all those 10 kids ready by herself, your wife has two kids. <laughs> and you're, you're telling me your wife can't get those two kids ready for church. What are you gonna do when you go to school? 
Are you going to stop, not come into work until 10 o'clock or whatever because you have to help your wife get the kids ready for work or ready for school? I said, do you hear what you're saying? Well, you know, I don't want to make her mad. I'm like, oh my gosh. He's cooked. He's cooked. And so as long as we were there, he could only serve if he had permission from his wife. And you're like, that's his Jesus, is his wife. He can't even serve Jesus because he's obeying his wife over Jesus. It was sickening. I hate to see that, but it does happen. And um, they're no longer with us, obviously, because the, the, the amount of work it takes to keep going with Rock Harbor, she ain't gonna, that ain't gonna fly, you know, right? You can't, he, you can't, you can't be here at Rock Harbor without serving and, and, So they're better off at a church that serves them rather than them serving anyone else. But nonetheless, it was an issue of a controlling person, controlling the spouse. And the spouse was quite fine being controlled. Scary, isn't it? Very scary. But people who don't give you your freedom are dangerous. Now, let let me show you this. You ever had somebody, a buddy or whatever, and, uh, or even a, a friend or even a family member saying, hey man, you guys gonna come over for dinner on Thursday night or whatever, or hey, we're gonna go to this concert or we're gonna go here and go here or whatever, and uh, we want you to come. And if you tell them no, they react negatively towards that. You ever had that encounter? Where, ah, come on, man, you're not, I know you're not doing anything. Come on, be one of the guys, be one of the gals, and we're going to have fun. And you say, no, nah, dude, I'm not interested. Watch out for people that don't respect your no. Because that person is a controller. And if they can't get you to come to some event or something or whatever it might be, and they pitch a fit when you say no that's a good indication you don't need to be around that person because they're trying to control you. And they should, a normal human being should give you the freedom to say, okay, no problem, Matt. maybe I'll catch you next time. It should be that easy. But controllers can't accept anyone telling them no. I can guarantee you that. Because I've dealt with a lot of them. Mr. Terry. Brandon, I guess my question is this. How much of this is learned behavior on the part of the person who's trying to control you, and how much of it is uh, actually thought out and planned? (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Nurture versus nature and all that. Yeah, um, what we tend to see, Terry, in in looking at the the, the dynamics, that the environment has a big factor on this of growing up. And um, there's no doubt that sin nature plays a part but we see more of an environmental influence on the person. So for instance, let's say this, this, this guy, I'm saying, I, did, I don't know about his past, but the hypothetical would lead, lead me to sh- see that if I, delved, I dwell, uh, delved into his past, I would find that he had an over-controlling mother. More likely. Or it could be an over-controlling dad. Okay? But typically... If it's the opposite sex that's the controller, they were raised by the opposite sex controller, typically speaking. 
and there's where the nature and versus nurture comes in, that the, it was a learned behavior growing up in the environment they're in because someone was a controller. And so what happens? They desperately want to get away from the controller. They don't like the controller in their life, okay? So they're 17, 16, 18, and they're like, dude, I can't take living with mom or whatever. She's trying to control every move I make. You know what'll happen? They'll get out of that house ASAP when they turn 18, and then they'll get married real quick. And you think, why? Why? Come on, you know why. Why would they get married real quick? I'm out of this house, I can't, get, I can't stand mom, she's an over-controller, boom, I'm 19, 20, boom, I'm getting married now. And then you see one of the person that they're hooked up with is a controller. What is that? Oh, the world of the sin nature mind. Here's what happens. If you grew up like that, you learn to deal with the controller even though you hate the controller. Okay? But it's all you've ever known. It's your hell. Okay? It's your personal hell. You hate your personal hell, but you know the road signs. Okay? So they, they say, I'm escaping. I got to get away from mom. Boom. You put them in a room full of singles. It's like control radar. In 20 singles, they'll go to the one. Are you the controller? Okay, I'm the, the control. Uh, the, I want to be controlled. Let's date. <laughs> and they instantly go to the controller. It's weird. Do you know why they instantly find that? Because if they find someone that gives them freedom, they don't like them. Oh, uh, no, we're, we're not a good match. That would actually be the good person because they give you freedom. But then they go into the, the room or whatever, the bar. I don't know what you want to call it. And it's full of singles, because they've done experiments on this, by the way. And they'll find the controller. You give them, you give them three hours, they'll find the, the controller. They will. They'll mingle and mingle and mingle until they find the controller. And boom, I found heaven. Right? I found someone that really gets me. And you know why that one gets you? Because they're just like your mom. And you're familiar with that kind of relationship. You're escaping mom, but you're going right back to mom in a controlled relationship. And dude, it's like that, Terry, it's like eight out of 10 times. Eight out of 10 times. They, their marriages reflect how they grew up. Unless they break the mold. Unless they break the mold like Abraham and Sarah and break the mold, then it's, it's, it's gone. But you have to get out of the paradigm. And a lot of people don't have the courage to get out of the paradigm in which they grew up. They are stuck in it and they think that's normal. Well, this is the way my, my family, yeah, but were your family believers? Well, no, then they, they couldn't raise you in a Christian way. You know good and well they didn't. So you have to break out of the paradigm. Now, what if my, my Christian parents or whatever were Laodicean? 
well, forget that. You're going to have to break out of the paradigm too because they're going to act like just like the world. And so you're going to have to break out of the paradigm for that. So my thing is, this idea of who I connect with, who I fellowship with, who I surround myself with is a big deal. It is a major deal. And so if you continue to repeat the pattern that you saw growing up, guess what? You will do it in your marriage and guess what will happen? The kids will act just like you. And, when, and they will marry their mom and dad. And in his, this is what happens. The controlling mother will hate the controlling daughter-in-law. I know I'm right. They will hate each other. And she will hate her because she's in over-control. No, she's over-controlling. And guess who's in the middle? This guy, Casper Milktoast. And he doesn't know whether to side with his mother or to side with his wife. But he'll typically side with the wife because he's got to go home to her. And so he becomes controlled by Mama 2.0. But they're fighting. They hate each other. Absolutely hate each other. This is where the whole uh, in-law thing comes into play. It, it, you can see it. It's, just so, it's like they hate each other because they're a reflection of each other. It's weird. Really weird. But that's, that's human nature. That's what will happen if you don't break out of these molds. Um, anyway, um, I'm going to stop there, I think. Um, I've given you too many things to think about. Let's take a five-minute break, and I'll come back and wrap things up, okay? Father, uh, thank you for uh, what we can learn. Help us to apply this to our lives so we can break out of the mold and become Abraham and Sarah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.